This week on Tuesday Noon, former police officer Linda Fisher-Lewis joins the roundtable to talk about the job, the beat, drinking, drugs, and prison. All that in the circle of life. It's Tuesday Noon for August 15, 2006. Welcome to Tuesday Noon. Uh, if, uh, what is today? I don't even know what today is. Tuesday. It is Tuesday. Tuesday. And August it's noon. 15th. And it's August 15th. It's Tuesday noon for August 15th. Uh, I am Pete Wright. I'm sitting here next to my uh, friend and colleague, Mr. Jamie, Jamie Whitley. Whitley. Mr. Jamie you. Whitley. And Mary Bradbury Jones. Yes. Who ha- You have a new gig. Can you talk about it now? I do have a new gig. Please tell us, where, what are you doing now? Uh, I am working for Merrill Hurst University yeah. and uh, helping them launch an online program. Well, that's fantastic. Very cool. Very so, cool. Yeah. Well, so they, they picked the right today, person, is that right? And they're moving into that. Does that? Yeah, they have an ex- they have a, an existing program that they're kind of finishing out mm-hmm. and then revamping and changing. Well, they picked the right so, person to have them help. Well, we're, thank you very we're much. We're sad to lose you from the University of Phoenix crowd, but you're still teaching for us, right? I so. am, and heavily involved. Well, in and you're still here for Tuesday good. noon, right? And still here She's for Tuesday not. noon. We're not going to lose her from yeah. the team, which is good. Just you and I. That would be tragic. No comedy. Yeah, well, it's excellent. Congratulations on the new year. Officially over there now, working. Yes, I am. Happy. Doing fine, yes. Not as happy, but happy. Miss everybody here a lot. Of course she does. And us the most. We're very special people. Yes. We have a very special episode, another very special episode of Tuesday All the episodes. All the episodes are slightly more special special. than the last. Today we have a very, can you say special guest? Is that... I don't, no, very I don't know. Ask our guests. I think it that's... depends what you mean by special. Well, that's what I was saying. Is she special? Is she not? We have a very special guest today who comes to us out of law enforcement. Her name is Linda Fisher-Lewis, and we're here today to talk a little bit about all kinds of things. Drugs, crime, community policing, death penalty, you name it, we'll cover it. Linda, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me here to start with. Um, I just retired after 19 years in law enforcement and uh, been involved in law enforcement since really I knew I was going to be a police officer since I was 12, so it's been something I've dedicated most of my life to. And along with that, um, looking at climbing up the ladder eventually, spent a lot of time in, in the school systems and education and, and hoping to get me there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I do a lot of teaching in law enforcement. I think it's the greatest job in the world. And, you know, if I can take five minutes to encourage anybody to go into that field, you know, I'll certainly take advantage of it because I think we're looking for great people and I think it's the best job. Why? Why? Because I think it takes a special person to be committed to making the community safe and doing things for other people that you may not even know. There's a lot of freedom, responsibility in the job, and uh, a lot of jobs don't offer that. You can go outside and and really make a difference in someone's life on a daily basis if that's what you choose to do. And there's really not a lot of jobs that allow you to do that. I think it's a noble career. I think anytime people are willing to put uh, other people's needs first, you know, I, I think it takes a special person to do that, but I think it makes it a great job because you're not only doing something that you enjoy, but you're doing something that makes a difference in the world. Very cool. Now that was I, really cool. That's very cool. Now, I would say, uh, what do you think is the society's perception of police officers? I mean, do, do you think the majority of society views um, that job, like you described it, as, as noble, as wanting to do something for the community and, and to give... For others, I wouldn't say that a majority of the society sees that. I think a lot of the society does. I mean, there's a lot of times that people come up to police officers and thank them for what they do. I think with 9-11 actually opened a lot of people's eyes to how much people are willing to sacrifice for the safety of other people. Right. And But then again, there's, you know, there's the whole media role and how the media looks at law enforcement. And a lot of times people in the community draw their conclusions about police officers from 
what the, me- the media depicts their job. And so I think there's a lot of people that are, that are rational enough to know or have contact with police when, and they realize that, you know, they are good people and they work hard. And then there's the few um, that listen to what the media and, and draws their conclusions from that. So what do you mean, listen to the media? I don't, I don't understand. So, I mean, we see things on TV. Are you saying that we get a one-sided viewpoint? And, and what is that? I think especially when things first happen. An example would say just a shooting because that's something, obviously, that always makes the news. And when a law enforcement officer is involved in a shooting, um, there's limited information that can come out to begin with because it's an ongoing investigation. And that investigation is to make sure that what the actions of the law, the law enforcement officer took were, in fact, legal actions. And so why it's an ongoing investigation, because really a shooting is really a homicide unless it's determined if it's justified or not by the officer. So there's limited information that can come out to the media. And so the media is going to give the information they can, and, I, and people are forced to read between the lines. And I think our society capitalizes on negative information, and that's the Absolutely. direction they're going to go first. And it's going to sometimes be a month or so before the actual information can get out as to what really happened. And so conclusions are drawn, and those conclusions usually aren't favorable for the law enforcement. You know, there's the beliefs, you know, some of the classes I teach right now, why can't we shoot the gun out of someone's hand? Why, you know, it, it's just not practical. You're in a high-stress situation. You have to make a decision that's life or death. And to try to narrow down your sights and use your, your fine motor skills to shoot, you know, the gun out of someone's hand or something like that just isn't realistic. I mean, you're talking fractions of a second to make a decision. And so I think people don't necessarily maybe understand that, haven't been in that type of stressful situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just draw conclusions based on, you know, reading between the lines of the information. And most of the time that's not positive. Well, Well, my concern is when I watch the news is that all you see are all those negative things. mm -hmm. And we don't see the hundreds and thousands of positive things that the police do every single day, so we just get the one news clip or five that's all negative. That's exactly what I was just thinking about. I mean, in fact, based on what we see today and the the amount of of police information on the media makes the police role one of delivery of bad news. I mean, that really is the function in today's society. Yes. That's all we get. So what do we do? What is the is the you know what is the the function of the police doing to to improve that? To, well, I think first the, the role that, of the PR of, yeah. in the uh, in your average police force has got to be excruciatingly painful. Well, I think having a good information officer within a police yeah. department is a, is really important to get the information out to to not, not make it seem like a closed system because it's not a closed system because we need the help of the community in, in order for law enforcement to be successful. But I wanted to get back to what you said about the bearers of bad news. If you really think about the role of a police officer, there rarely is a time that you're going to see a police officer with it initially being a positive experience. So if you're asking a police officer to your house, it's not because you're having a barbecue and you want them to hang out and want to chat with them. It's because you've been a victim of something. It doesn't mean the police officer's brought the bad news, it means you've been a victim, and so you've called them there. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be negative. You know, if something's happened to your family, if there's been a motor vehicle accident, if it's a traffic ticket, whatever it is, it just doesn't have a positive ground to start with. And in the 19 years I was in law enforcement, I never had someone call me up and say, hey, we're having a barbecue, would you like to stop by? I mean, that's just not the nature of the job. But officers do a lot of positive things, and I think the compassion that they have I mean, from the police officer standpoint, you know, how many times do you go and tell a family that they've lost a family member in a motor vehicle accident? I think the compassion that that person takes with them when they, when they go to that family, it's still bad news, but it's just as hard on the person delivering the news Absolutely. as it is the person receiving it. And you may receive that news once in your lifetime, and a police officer gives that message 
several times in a lifetime. And instead of just seeing it as a negative impact, looking at the compassion it takes for those people to go do that in a caring way, to stay there with you, to get people there to support you, you know, whether it be chaplains, other family members, they'll stay there with you, tell you, make the phone calls you need, get people there to be with you. They're never going to leave you alone, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's emotional for them too. So, I mean, it's difficult, and I think it's just nature of the job that makes per- people perceive negative contacts. But it's really, you know, it's really not. There's a lot of times that you have contacts with police officers that end up in a good way, even if they started in a bad way. You know, I've seen lost kids uh, in the community and, and police officers putting in extra time, staying overtime, coming in on their own time, you know, to help those people. You know, back with the floods, I saw police officers coming in on their days off just to help people, not because they were getting paid to, not for any other reason, but you're in the middle of it and, you know, you have a commitment to society and coming in and putting that extra time. And it's just that it's limited times that people really see or understand how much that goes on. What is maybe the average tenure of a police officer? Well, what they say in law enforcement is they have you for five years, they have you for life. And so a lot of police officers, the attrition happens within that first five years. You know, the stress of it, the shift work, um, the different things, people usually decide pretty early on. And I, th- I think a lot of people decide within the first two years that maybe it is not the job for them. When they say they have you for life after five years, I think that you get such a um, perspective of people and you're dealing with that, you know, 10% of the people that take up 90% of your time, it, it's easy to start to get cynical mm-hmm. and not, and you forget that there are actually a lot of really good people because you don't deal with them. I see younger people maybe decide not to have family, not to have kids because they don't get to see the good side of kids all the time. They get to see the negative side of kids. And it just kind of, I think, comes kind of a cycle where you get really attached to people, their life and death situations you've been in with those people and you kind of get committed to that and I think that's why you don't see people leave law enforcement after that period of time because you maybe don't feel like other people understand and then once you've been there for a period of time then of course the retirement issues and you know are you going to start over at that point do you feel like you're socialized anymore you can you know you can do other jobs what is it that you're qualified to do when you've been in that situation for that period of time and high stress and and then a lot of police officers die within the first year and a half after they retire and it's just the change in the job and the people in that connection. Wow. Interesting. And a lot of the illnesses are stress-related. Yeah. Once After they the leave, yeah. they develop cancer. and Or they'll have the stress-related injuries, but you don't slow down enough, and then at the time, stress-related, like heart issues or that. Suddenly so you slow down and momentum catches yeah. up with you. And, and it's not a conducive lifestyle to healthy eating. You know, you're working odd hours. Yeah. You're on the rush. You're grabbing things in a hurry. So, you know, the foods that you eat and that kind of thing probably aren't the best for you, and you do that for 25 years, and like anybody who does that, yeah. it's probably not going to have a good good ending for you. What sort of development are you seeing in, in non-lethal sort of restraint? and you know? Non-lethal seems to, I think, kind of come and go. Um, you know, 10 years ago, the beanbags were the big thing, and, you know, you saw them successfully using them against people with maybe challenged with mental illnesses that are having some type of episode. Yeah. But then they find out that they're not necessarily that successful with people, I mean, if they're not firing necessarily, you know, correctly in, in the brain or that, maybe the pain, they're not going to feel the pain tolerance, and that's what those work on is a pain-type tolerance. Right. And I the, saw the police departments making a real trend towards it, and then it kind of goes away again because police officers end up getting hurt because they're in a situation where they should be using lethal force possibly, and they're bringing less lethal force, you know, as, as they say, bringing a knife to a gunfight. You know, mm-hmm. you're bringing a beanbag to a gunfight, and you're probably not going to end up on the upper end. They've had um, pepper balls, you know, has oh, been a real goodness. successful mm-hmm. way. Um, 
the tasers are kind of the trend ball. now. What do the pepper balls do? They have an OC spray inside of them, and so when you shoot and they impact, then the, the OC spray then it's comes fresh. out, right? And that incapacitates someone as far as difficult breathing. Usually their eyes will shut, and uh, they can breathe, but it just feels different, kind of difficult, kind of creates a panic-type yeah. feeling and kind of incapacitates people for a short period of time. And so there's there's been trends. It seems like they come and go, and right now the tasers are kind of the hot topic. There's been some deaths um, when people have been tased, but they're not actually related to the tasers. But, of course, the correlation gets drawn, and so I think they're going to start looking at that again. I mean, there's never, I think, going to be a complete answer, and it, it's just the idea of, you know, people want us to do the police officer do the least they can to uh, deal with the situation, but they never want to see it come to a lethal end. And the police officers don't either, but, I mean, the fact is sometimes it's going to. That doesn't make anybody happy, but... You know, you can't put police officers' life in jeopardy because you think they should be taken to being begged to a gunfight. I think a lot of it comes back to the public information officer at the departments and getting the information out. And when you're in a scenario where it is a less lethal and it's successful, explaining why it is. And when you're in a less lethal situation that um, rises to the occasion of a lethal situation, helping people understand why that is. I mean, I, I think if there's a weakness in the community, it's, it's being willing to give the information out. In a way, it's kind of like these things are a secret. However, communication is always going to be your friend. And if you can get information out where people have the opportunity to understand what is actually going on, um, then they're going to be understanding more of why we have to react the way we do or why we don't have to react the way we do or, or what all is going on. But as long as it kind of stays a closed community, um, I think that's always going to be a hurdle. Well, and it's certainly hard in 15 and 20 second sound bites. So you're trying to explain something that's a little more complicated and then you've only got a couple of seconds on a TV news program or whatever to go over it and so then it gets washed down to its minimal part and people pick up on it and take it as fact or whatever. And so it's it's difficult to do, I imagine, very difficult. Absolutely. And, you know, situations that aren't, um, you know, that are charging, that people really want to know about, um, maybe aren't the situations that end up in a less lethal, happy ending. You know, maybe those aren't the ones that we really want to spend the time on. We want to spend the time the ones that didn't. And, you know, Pete said early on, you know, we we only see a certain part of it. We see one good thing or bad thing that happens in a month, and we don't see the 100 positive things that the police officers have done in their community during that month also. You know, it's kind of sensationalism, what do people want to hear. But that doesn't sell. That's why I don't watch exactly. the news. That's why I don't watch nightly yeah, news. I don't either. I mean, so you get a dozen negative things in a row. Death, stabbings, murder, fraud, whatever. Bacteria what? in the kitchen. Yeah, like I, don't, I don't need that. Tell me something positive. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't turn it on. How do you guys get your news? I know it's a discussion for another time, but uh, yeah. I mean, well, I, I don't, you guys seem like pretty informed people, and you're not watching the news. I no, hear that all the time. I don't, I, don't, I don't take in any media because it's all biased and negative, and I don't. Well, except for Fox News. Except for Fox News, <laughs> and watch them all the time because they're fair and balanced. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, no, I, I don't watch the local nightly news generally just because it is all negative stuff, and do I want to feel that about my community? And, cause I don't, and this is a question for you, Linda. It, by and large, when you see all this, you come away thinking, oh, my God, where the world's falling apart, and should I even go out of my house? And Is it really like that well, I think out there? What you've got to remember is that 90-10 rule, is that 10% of the people are, take up 90% of the time. So if you look at that as the population, it's a small percentage of the population, mm-hmm. 
that is, is involved in these issues. So really, it's a small part of your area. If you just think about just 10% of everything, it really is a small part and a few people that are involved in that. So I think it's easy to, to have that idea, but it's not really logical and realistic because it is just a small amount. If you think about anything, you know, in your workplace, you know, with employees or whatever, 10% of those people take up 90% of your time. In the school setting, 10%, 90%, it's the same idea. So if you think about that 90-10 principle, you're only getting just a small, you know, snippet of actually what is, what's going on and, and what the issues are. One of the things I've seen a lot in the news these days is, and it relates to technology, which we do a lot in this show, but technology and sexual predators and the internet and kids and I mean is that is that really a big problem and and what are we seeing and it is a huge problem and I think I don't think the media can portray enough how big of a problem that is you know we have communities where right now you know both parents work in the home and the kids are left at home and they have computers and they're going to find a way to have conversation and be involved in these chat rooms you know are just a lifeline for for pedophiles and, uh, you know, the parents don't necessarily know what's going on. And parents that are informed and want to be a part of it aren't going to catch it 100%. And, you know, you've got this lifeline for, for these, and it's an awkward age for kids in those teenage years. And they've got someone that's paying attention to them and, and uh, is their friend and thinks that they're great and that doesn't judge them or have any issues. And, and, and has their best interest And they want to meet heart. with them, absolutely. Yeah. And we get people coming down from other states. You know, you talk about the substantial step to come and meet up with those kids and maybe they don't meet up with them but they come from another state and plan on it they're in the neighborhood you know we've had to really start to to work with those laws because you're obviously it's it's obvious what these people's intents are and uh, you know they're good at, at hiding who they are you know you see pedophiles in the news they take positions where they can be with kids they're gonna do the same thing where they can have the conversation with the kids online and, and portray that image that those kids are interested in. I mean, they know what they're doing, and it is a big problem, and it's it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem all the time. And how many pedophiles are there out there? I mean, you, you, More than three. <laughs> you would think, though, that it's a, you know, in the scheme of things, it should be a small number, certainly, you would hope. But even if it is, you know that the pedophile isn't just interested in one child. One, are okay. they so ever they truly around, Yeah, I don't yeah. even know how to... How to rationalize that question. But you know what I mean? By, by listening Thank God there to that, are too many of them. Listening to that, that makes you think, my gosh, what's what's happened to people? All these people like kids. I mean, are I people mean, does really that different? Sense? I don't know if the percentages are any different than they used to be. I mean, I, Maybe I, it's just easier to get get access sure. and then therefore... Sure. Well, I think the internet has, has really made the, the access easier for people to be in contact with children because you don't even have to have children in your community. You can have them in the next county, the next state, or whichever due to the internet. And now you but are sexual predators them. ever reformed? So we send them to jail, or we do whatever, and, and they get out, and they just do the same thing over again? It's what it seems like when I look at the news. Is that accurate? There was just a recent story of that happening here, where it got out and and uh, I think was out maybe a week, something like that. I can't remember yeah. the name. But so why do we let them out in the first place? I think that that is, you know, everybody I think has a different position on that, you know, whether it's factual or not, I don't know. I obviously, I personally don't think that they are reformed, and I think there's been many um, prolific pedophiles in the past who have said they have that they won't be reformed. They'll continue to do what they do. Um, and there's Jeffrey Dodds out of Washington who has to be put to death because he's never going to change. And so I guess you can look at it from the perspective of those people that are pedophiles that say, yeah, I can't be reformed, and, uh, you know, and then draw your conclusions from there. 
Wow, that's a scary thing. Yeah, it's, it's totally scary. But it, I, I think from what I've read, and I'm certainly not an expert at it, but you know, talking, um, we were talking earlier today that we have another expert in, in this actual area of pedophiles and, and serial killers and those sorts of things that we ought to have on the show sometime. But uh, no, I don't, according to him and what I've read, there isn't a lot of reform. And mm-hmm. So what do, you, what do you do in that case? Death penalty? Do you... Well, how much leeway do you have when you, again, it goes back to this sort of, you know, decisions made on committee. You have a guy who says, I'm never going to be reformed. I I don't know how that turned out. Did he, was he put to death? Yes, he was. Oh, fancy that. See, I I had a whole argument about how a committee probably stepped in and said no. no, But he got his wish. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted that. But, you know, how often does that happen? I mean. Yeah, it's rare, you know, that someone would accept that much responsibility you know, for their own actions and realizing yeah. this is the way it's going to be. It's not the way I should be, so. There have also been uh, rapists that have said that, too, yeah. that yeah. I can't be reformed and I need to spend the rest of my life in jail because I'll do it again if I have the opportunity. So, But I've, then there have been, I think, I, well, I don't know, have there been rapists that have been reformed? I don't know. Or just haven't been caught again? Or you know, yeah. caught. Good okay. point. Man. You know, I think there's a society issue, yeah. you know, when it comes to that and, and people's rights and, you know, if it was your family member, what would you want done? You know, and then, you know, maybe they can be reformed. I think there's always that because we do try actually to find the good in people, especially if there's someone that we know. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you when something major happens in, in a community and you talk to the people, yeah, he was a really nice guy or she was this or she was that. I mean, we want to look for the good in people when it really comes down to it. You know, sterilization, is that something that would affect, that would help with the, you know, with the pedophile situation or the rapist situation or whichever? But society, I don't think, is ever going to say, yeah, it's okay to sterilize people, even if it was the difference between, you know, lethal injection or sterilization. Where do you stand? Where do I stand? Well, I I pretty much don't think the pedophiles are, are, uh, I don't think they recover. I think it's something that they can't control. It's uh, a mental illness. It it is. I think Mm -hmm. it's an illness that can't be controlled. And, you know, I would like to see, personally, maybe the sterilization standpoint to see if it is something that would help with those impulses. And if I think if you could help people to have a normal part of, you know, life and come back and be a part of society, I think that would be the first goal. You know, I mean, I don't have issues with the death penalty, but when it comes to people that maybe can't control those actions, if we're able to um, resolve that and let them be a part of society, you know, I think that would be the way to try first. But... It just seems that everybody's absolutely against sterilization. I know there's been people in prison that have been willing to have chemical sterilization to keep from their impulses and urges, and how successful that is, I don't really know. And is it taught? So how many of pedophiles were abused themselves by an adult? We'll have, we'll have Dr. Khan on to help okay. us with those yeah, things, because he's an expert in that area. Yeah, that would be really good. How do we get to so, such heavy topics? I don't yeah, know. It just got so heavy all of a sudden. I mean, the first thing I'm thinking about is, God, I mean, don't we have sort of a history of um, forced sterilization? I mean, we have the, the reason there is a, a sort of community animosity or social animosity toward that process is because we've been down that road before. And you have victims of, you know, forced sterilization that, that come well, goes back years to later. That and, pendulum, doesn't it? So we don't want that, and so the pendulum swings the other way, which is, well, we're not going to do any, and the answer's somewhere in the middle, and it's... Maybe, maybe yeah, but, but it seems like we're almost in an era where the pendulum is swinging so far both ways, swinging wider and further every well, with every revolution rather than normalizing at any sort of center. But that's politics, isn't it? I, I mean, really, when you yeah. look at... Even if you look at the right and the left and Republicans and Democrats and you create these extreme divisions to argue your point and maintain power when 
the vast majority of us are just in the middle trying to find a decent answer. And, yeah. Or just in the middle and don't care. Or don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. we're unaware people. or for any other reason. Or too busy in our own lives to maybe care. So. Mm-hmm. Or we don't think they're as important as they think they are. Until it happens just in your family. Until it happens well, in your family. Well, it's probably true. Yeah, right. Until right. It and then it becomes home. something very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but I think you got, we have to have a, a determination of what the goal really is. Is the goal to lock people up? Is the goal to bring them back into society as a productive member? What is the actual what is, goal? What does locking them up do? Exactly. Well, what is our goal? Is our goal just to keep the community safe, and so we lock them up forever, and that would do that? Is our goal to bring them back into society? And if we know that, okay, this is an illness that they can't overcome, what are some ways we can do that? I mean, I think you've got to decide what the goal is, truly decide, and then figure out which direction you're going to go from there. You know, it's funny. I saw the uh, interview with the president of Iran the other day. Did you guys see that on on TV? And so he was talking about how... um, the uh, percentage of people who are incarcerated in the United States is like 1% or something like that of our total population. I don't know if that's accurate or not. And, and he was talking about in Iran how, well, we don't have nearly that many and et cetera. I'm thinking, yeah, because you probably just kill them. <laughs> we just chop off their hand. <laughs> of course you don't put them in jail. Well, that was uh, what we heard in, in Cuba. You know, yeah. I mean, you're under house arrest forever and ever. Like, yeah, you know? so of course you don't have yeah. 1% locked up because yeah. they're all dead. But, I mean, is one and those people with that 1%, if that's accurate, I don't know. Is where the vast majority of those coming from? It's probably coming from from drug related crimes, exactly. I would imagine, and and so that brings up a whole and issue minor of, drug crimes too. Yeah, I mean, is that should we be putting people away in jail for minor drug crimes, or and and how does that play in? And and I'm interested to know from from a police point of view, when you see drug on the streets, what are the negative impacts, and and does it make sense? Do you think to lock people up, or or should we work on rehabilitation or change our Crime laws altogether. Because there's a laws. view that people that you know have, al- you know, uh, alcohol abuse or, or drug abuse that that is a sickness. I mean, that's you know, that's a medical uh, condition in a and, way. And yet you turn around and it's prescribed for a medical condition. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's crystal well, meth. You take crystal meth. Is that? Yeah, that's not well, for that's glaucoma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but then you're you're hooked. I mean, isn't it easy? Very easy to get hooked. So is that a medical condition? Is yeah, that? That's, you know, and then do you throw a person in jail for that for trying to? But they can be. Well, so the question is, what is what is the role of of incarceration, long term incarceration in uh, minor or moderate drug related crimes? Is that what right? Is yeah. that the big question? All right, Linda. Well, I think my first question is, what would be considered a minor drug crime? They've got a bag of weed. Well, in, well, the, how state, much? in the state of Oregon, <laughs> you, you can't go to jail for less than an ounce. Right. Okay, but okay. This so Oregon's a, a little unique. Not but, to educate uh, right. people. On that. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. Not, this is this is not. Uh, we're not endorsing. But in other states, not creating a checklist. Be, yeah. It could be a very small amount, and you just happen to be walking home with a small amount, and you are within 15 feet of a school. Right. Well, we all know that, man. You are. That's mandatory, if I understand right. That you go thousand to prison feet of a school, them. but it okay. usually Whatever, has to be yeah. in the package, packaged in the sense of a delivery type system. You but know. how easy is it for you know a cop to say even if you had a quarter ounce you had intent to sell, and you were near a school therefore you're 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 going down for the maximum which is well I think you know part what, of that 10 I mean years, I think it's easy to I think it's easy to have that you know perception of that but the legal system still there has to be a preponderance of the evidence, and then which is the fifty one percent then the ninety eight percent you know guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, you know so I think it's a little more difficult to get there and I actually don't see people for minor drugs being sent to prison. 
Now, I'm not all the way through the system, and I know that people make pleas and that kind of thing, but the people that I see going to prison are people that have large amounts that are dealing and manufacturing and that. So I, well, you're Oregon. Right, right, and I hear yeah. that, and it doesn't mean that it's not true. It's just not something I've really been a party of because I've dealt with people that have had you know, amounts of drugs and you know, methamphetamine doesn't have a medicinal purpose, and they have a large amount on them. You know, and it's not much longer. I'm dealing with them again. So they certainly didn't go to jail for any period of time or prison any period of time. And so I have a hard time, I guess, conceptualizing that from, from the part that I, the role I've played on the street. Right. And, you know, I think it's easy to say that, you know, I got sent to prison and all I had was this, but what is the reality of it? I mean, do we really have time in the court system, in the law enforcement system, in the prison systems to put those people in prison for a long time, you know, with a, with a little tiny amount of drugs when we have people with large amounts that are affecting, you know, huge parts of the community and that type of thing. I mean, realistically, I think it would be interesting to see what the exact statistics are right. and what I think it's more of a perception than what is really going on, you know. And then those folks, you know, at least from my understanding, and, and I've certainly been influenced by pop culture, but uh, partic- <laughs> particularly the other show, I totally Oz, didn't see that going. you know. Um, but if anybody watched that show, Oz, on yeah. HBO, it, it was very enlightening into, first of all, what goes on in the prisons, and that basically, you know, it, it, you followed stories of people that in their lives made some bad choices. One in particular was a lawyer who drank too much at a party, drove home, you know, accidentally uh, hit somebody and killed them, went into prison, had never, you know, been a you know, criminal life, father, husband, you know, a productive member of society, and to see what happens to him over the course of the time that he's in, um, and he becomes a criminal because he has to learn how to function within. And and I, from what I've heard, at least from some of the mm-hmm. from some of the folks that uh, work out of Salem, out of the prisons, that Oregon does, I think, have a fairly good prison system compared to other states. I mean, I, from what I've understood, and I could be wrong, but Oregon does focus a lot on re- rehabilitation, whereas other states don't. So I think um, some of those, pr- they come in and, and, and they have to become a criminal to survive in prison. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that's definitely a, you know, a tragedy um, when you have good people. You know, they're not in that 10%. You have good people that make a bad decision you know, at one moment that changes their lives forever. Exactly. And it is difficult, I think, to be in a prison system. And, and you know, I think you have to become a criminal, so to speak, or at least have a criminal mind in order to survive in there. Yeah. But the decisions you make when you come back out goes back to that decision you made way back that put you in there. You know, what direction are you going to go from there? I think it's different for someone who's in that situation as opposed to someone who is socialized in the criminal system because they've always been in it and right. don't know how to function outside because they never had the tools prior. And I think it's, you know, incumbent upon the system, so to speak, to give them those tools as opposed to someone who's had the tools, made a mistake, and where they go from there, I think it's their decision. And, and unfortunately, there are a lot of really good people that make that one split decision exactly that changes their lives forever. I think probably everybody at this table has had a, not of maybe of that magnitude, but had something in their life where, you know, in a split second, they didn't maybe make the best decision. I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> I don't even have to be crime-related. I mean, just, you know, oh, well, then, yeah, yeah absolutely. No, but, you know, where, and, and, and where in hindsight you've said, yeah. boy, I wish I hadn't have done that. Truly. Absolutely. I'll cop to that. Okay. That's I mean, quite I'm a not phrase. sitting around that table with a yeah, no pun intended. bunch of goody-two-shoes. But here, here's what I don't understand. So we're talking about, in a lot of cases, 
drugs and alcohol and those sorts of things. Why is this such a big problem in the United States? So I, I have a tendency to drive things back to social issues. Why is this a big problem as compared to, I mean, for, for Jiminy Christmas, so you, have, you have Afghanistan. Jiminy Christmas. <laughs> Where did that come from? What, Disney circa 1957? Well, I think I had some other word in mind, and, and it just was like, ah, uh, how, how, how do I get that out? Uh, Jimmy Christmas. I love it. That's yeah. Jimmy Christmas. So Afghanistan, they're growing opium. And and I don't know that I hear about this huge opium drug problem in terms of people well, being heroin. all... But why can other countries... Why do they not have some of the drug problems that we have? Or maybe they do, and, and we just don't see it. Well, I know in other countries, and I couldn't tell you the exact percentages now because it's been a while since uh, I've been involved in any research, but in, in some of the other countries... There's a no tolerance for, say, drinking and driving or a tolerance of a .02. And if you drink and drive in one of those countries, not even if you're in an accident, you may lose your driving privileges for life, never be able to own another car, go to jail, whichever. And I think in some of the countries you're talking about, the penalties are huge. So our problem is we're too lenient on crime. We're too lenient on the little stuff. That can be part of it. You steal something, cut off your hand. I mean, really, right? Exactly. You wouldn't do it again, right? yeah. or the odds would go way and down. And if you know they're going to cut off your hand without 25 appeals, you know, and this, that, and who can afford the best attorney or whichever, you know, is that going to be a deterrent when you see a few people walking around the neighborhood with no hand, you know, as opposed to, I mean, I mean, I think that's part of it. I don't, I'm not saying that I agree, but I'm just, if you're asking the generic question, you know, why is this happening, but it doesn't happen in other cultures, it's like you mentioned about the prison not having as many people in prison, well, because they don't have as many people that are alive that are committing those crimes. And so I think that's more, but our social aspect is different. And I think also... The demands on civil liberties, right. in fact, the, sort of the slippery slope of, okay, you can't drive forever, and you know what else? You can't vote. And we have a tendency to abuse things, so because you're not supposed to do them. So we are talking earlier about some friends that Mary had that are from Germany, and, and their perception of alcohol is different because... For them, you grow up with it, so it's not a big deal. And here, you're you're young, and and you go out to a party, and and all bets are off because all of a sudden you're doing this taboo thing. To rebel. And, and so we kind of create our own environment where we create criminals or create criminal behavior based upon the way we set up our society. Absolutely. We drive people to that. I'm not saying you don't take responsibility, but we make it easier for them to behave that way. I mean, if it, you know, it, it from what I understand, and I've had a few friends that. Um, have been have had issues with with drugs and and they've been rehabilitated. But what they will say is is that um, alcohol is the gateway drug, and that nobody in America really wants to step up and discuss that because it is such an ingrained part of our culture. If you think about it, and and people don't want to sit and admit that what I enjoy to do, you know, on a on an evening with a good steak and and have a nice glass of wine, is to some extent part of the problem and so therefore we kind of brush that under the rug right um, and and I, and I don't know if maybe in other countries they you know they're more willing to look at alcohol and the role it plays again well, not, not having done some research I'm not sure in but. terms of policing I mean what do you see more of do you see more infractions due to alcohol or due to drug use I don't think you can draw a distinction between the two I mean curses yeah, because a <laughs> lot of probably times, both involved. Yeah, if yeah. the law enforcement is responding a large portion of the time, people have lost their ability to reason and be logical. And when you use drugs or alcohol to an excess, especially with the alcohol, you've lost that ability. So what happens? Law enforcement gets called. So, you know, it goes back to the barbecue. 
you know, when everything, everybody's having a good time and out in the backyard drinking iced tea, they have their abilities to be reasonable and logic, and, and we don't necessarily, you know, get called to those events. So, I mean, I think a lot of just the activity that law enforcement responds to is underlying related, you know, to the alcohol or drug issue. You know, whether it's victims of a crime, mm-hmm. you know, property mm-hmm. crimes, you're getting, you know, people are stealing stuff to, you know, to... Um, fence it to buy drugs or whichever, so much of it is related around that specific issue. Hmm. Property crimes, identity theft. Should we legalize drugs? That was for you, not me. (laughs) (laughs) That's not controversial. I don't think we should go there. Why not? Um, well, they haven't. Well, and that's really the question. I mean, we, we're already talking about sort of th- that our window is is perhaps too too wi- opened a little bit too wide, right? Mm-hmm. We, that, that what do you mean? We were talking about the fact that you know the the penalties for small crimes we tend to be too lenient. If that's the hypothesis, then what is then then maybe legalization is sort of the pendulum swinging the other way. I mean, if you're asking my personal opinion. I'm going to absolutely say no, you know, and that's just based on my experience in life. It's not based on anything, you know, academic or, you know, anything like that. It's just my personal opinion. And because I think if it is more readily available, then I think you're going to see people thinking that that is something okay. It's safe or they wouldn't make it. I mean, I hear that with kids and alcohol all the time. Yeah. You know, so does that mean if we say, okay, it's legal, then we're endorsing that it's something that's not going to hurt you? You know, the the ecstasy, the, you know, the rave drug. All the times I hear kids say, it's a safe drug. You know, we, people don't fight when they're on that. They don't, but it's not a safe drug. There isn't a safe drug. You know, I mean, it's going to have some type of adverse effect on you, and over time you will become a person that's involved in methamphetamine. And, you know, I'm a drug recognition expert. I was when I was a law enforcement officer, and I know factually that you will, in fact, be addicted to methamphetamine when you use um, the ecstasy for a period of time. And I go talk in the high schools and talk with kids, and that's the first question they raise. We know that ecstasy is safe. And I get this ecstasy that has this markings on it, and they have the people there at the raves that check it for you to let you know it's okay. They're just letting you know there's not something else in it. They're not letting you know that it's okay. And it's just a misunderstanding. And I think once you make that readily available and there's a perception that we say it's okay, then there's going to be an amount of people that will use those thinking that we have said it was safe. And, you know, I have such a firm uh, stance against it, I guess, because I have seen many tragic deaths based around drugs, you know, in my 19 years. And there is no way that I would personally say, yeah, this is okay. This is a good thing to do. This is going to be fine with having that experience in my background. So how do we make, though, and I think it's a great stance, but how do we make the differentiation between, say, pot and alcohol? Why does alcohol get to be legal? Because you look at the stats of alcohol, you know, you've got, um, and I used to teach OLCC classes, so we would run through the stats about alcohol. And you have um, 98% of domestic abuse is alcohol-related, 99% of child abuse is alcohol-related, over 50% of the people that kill themselves each year over the legal limit, um, intoxication limit when they do it. Um, you've got like 76% of, of violent crimes, alcohols related in some way. Many times it's the victim that was actually under the influence of, of alcohol, but in some way it's, it's associated there. Um, so, yeah, how, how do you then sit and justify that when something that is legal that we can go and purchase does just as much damage? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just the way our society is. That's the way we grew up. So somewhere on the line, 
we said, oh, well, alcohol's okay. And then see, the way we grew up, I mean, somewhere along the line, my grandfather was an alcoholic and died of it, you know? I mean, oh, that's... Oh, yeah, we're talking... And the way we grew up, somewhere along the line, sh that should have been a trigger mechanism that said it's not okay. But don't you've got to look at... I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, too, and, and even though I have a you know pretty one-sided perspective, you know, the things we have been talking about are in excess, we're talking about alcohol in excess. We're not talking about coming home and having a glass of wine with right. dinner. We're talking about people that are abusing alcohol. They're drinking, you know, more than than what would be considered a norm. And these kind of things happen. You get under the influence. You lose your ability to logic, um, to have reason, and such. And we're like with many of the drugs, it's not like you can just pour out a little bit of a drug, and that would be the amount that would, you know, go well with dinner. You know, you don't know how much you're getting. It's not regulated. You don't know what you're getting, and it's going to be to excess. But if you take alcohol and you don't put in that abuse situation and you have one drink, would anybody here argue that to have a drink with dinner is well, an that, issue? Well, that's really the oh, argument, absolutely. and I, I'm not going to step up and say that. I you know, happen to enjoy a few myself every now and again, but what I, I think what Mary's getting to is, is really that question. is why is, is how come, I mean, how do we know that that next drink isn't going to be the one that tips you over to excess? Just as how do we know that next joint isn't going to be the one that leads you to, you know, standing a thousand and one feet from a school with, you know, barcoded and priced bags of pot? How do we know <laughs> that's not going to take you to that next step? How do you know? Yeah, because the excess question is, is one that begs of, well, okay, if you did regulate those drugs and barcode them, then would you know where excess is? And then could you, could it basically become simply like alcohol? Or is the nature of some of those drugs different in that the tendency is into excess far more than alcohol? Therefore, we as a society say that temptation is too high. The, the trade-off and the negative things that happen is, is greater than alcohol, so we're going to, the limit's there, and, and that's, we've made that decision. But we are, with not putting people in jail for minor drug crimes, we are slowly but surely eroding that and, and saying, oh, well, this is okay, and this is okay. And so that's kind of happening by default anyways, it's just not regulated. And not just the, the small drug crimes, any of those crimes that are drug-based, identity theft, you know, burglary, those kind of things, you know, you know, you get caught 50 times before something actually happens. And the reason those those crimes are occurring is so that we can purchase drugs, we right? Can purchase those the things to manufacture. I mean, it's, it's connected. So it's mm -hmm. it's not even the minor drug stuff. It's the minor crimes, that come off of it. you know, until you get into something bigger. Is that an economic issue? I mean, do, do people then, I mean, so then it goes back to, well, if we had jobs and things for people to do, therefore then they wouldn't feel that they had to do this and a year ago we wouldn't have the crime and those sorts of things. Well, and I think, you know, we talked about a social issue before before we started the show, you know, uh, what do our kids and people have to do? I mean, we wait till you become 18 and then we throw you out in the society, but we haven't done a lot to cultivate, you know, work ethics and that type of thing. So then do, do the kids know how to function? And then you have, you grow up in a home where people aren't functioning. And so do you have a mentor to help you? And so then it does become an economic, I think it's a social issue, you know, I mean, it's very, there's not one, not one way you can say this is, this is it. This so is we should do it. mandatory military, two years of service. Not necessarily but, you military, know, I, I but it gets it, to a much, it's a whole nother show. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it would be interesting, though, I mean, another kind of study to look at, which is the change in society where you have both parents working now, 
and you have both parents working much harder to stay ahead. So you have um, maybe a lot more absentee fathers to some extent too, you know, who leave very early in the morning to go off to work and then by the time they get home, you know. Um, and so less like we were, you know, before kind of talking, uh, less bonding with their parents and some of those things that then, so they start looking to the other avenues, thus sexual predators, thus their peers and really influencing them in the area of drugs and alcohol or those kinds of things. And so it'd be interesting to see how stats have maybe changed as that has changed in society. Yeah, interesting too that, you know, I read a study recently on, uh, you know, the millennials being a generation that is more influenced by their parents than any generation heretofore. That they are staying at home. They're going to. They're forecasting that they're going to stay at home longer. That they're going to like their whole world is going to change. Um, and I'd be interesting to see how that will play out in terms of their. You mean that, that the millennials or the Gen Y have a tendency to, to stay home and not step they're wanting out to change to have yeah. to have a a, uh, a peer relationship with their parents oh. unlike any before. Oh, because they didn't have a relationship with their parents, and so they're missing it. So they're saying they they want to establish one. Yeah, is that perhaps? Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see as that group comes through. It's like what, forty-five million people or something yeah. like that. It's and they're due in like twenty minutes. Twenty-five <laughs> minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's they're all going to be here, <laughs> all on the show, all of them. So here's a thought: What yeah. about um, as a society, if we were to, or as the government, if they were to subsidize families that had a parent that stayed home with the kids, would that money better be served? Look out, Jamie, to help do that, oh. as opposed to, Uh-oh. as opposed to using those money, those monies to fund rehab programs and those other type of programs, Prison. if truly, you know, part of it is the fact that everybody's working in the home, is there isn't that one-on-one time with the family and the kids and, and that development, if that was the case, then wouldn't that money be better spent in, in, you know, if a family has a parent at home, there's some types of subsidy that helps pay for that so that you can make ends meet, but then we're going to have a, a family, um, you know, that's functional. Well, I'm going to argue with the premise, which says you can't make ends meet unless both people work. I mean, you have to go back to what does it take to make ends meet? And there's a lot of commercialism and and consumerism, which says, well, I have to have this SUV and I have to have this. And uh, if you look at the percentage of home ownership, we lived in larger homes than we've ever Mm -hmm. lived in. I don't know about all that, Jamie. I mean, I think there are a lot of people out there who don't really give a whip about the next SUV or a 1,700-square-foot house that really are just trying to make ends meet. But their health care costs are killing them. Because they can't afford to, they cannot afford to live based on what they, their situation. Yeah, I mean, we, we, it would be interesting to have a really in-depth discussion to look at some of the data and different things because part of, part of our perception is I, th- I think we, and we'll see it all the time, and, and again, I, I hate to make generalizations based upon a couple of observations, but you'll have a family maybe that doesn't have a lot of money, but then we have to make sure we have the greatest $250 Nikes. And, and so, I mean, we have little mixed-up priorities. I'm not saying things aren't hard and it's hard to live. I wonder sometimes if we create our own problems because of what our perception is of what our needs are versus what our real needs are. And that if we really focus on what our real needs are, that we wouldn't we wouldn't really need as much and both parents wouldn't have to work. So uh, I don't know how I started on that conversation. Yeah. Well, I started. But I think, she started well, it started and it, she but I understand sent you down that perspective road. As well. I mean, I think that you have some really good points there. You know, is it so that we make two ends meet, you know, the ends meet so that we can, you know, we're at the bottom part of Maslow's hierarchy or... Is it making two ends meet so that we're at the neighborhoods, you know, 
level of horror. Well, and I and I think too that kind of one of the your your question is lending itself a little bit to a more strategic solution to a problem versus um, the quick fix solutions, which is you know, create more laws, put more people in prison, whatever those are, that doesn't really, we're finding, doesn't stop people from the crime. So if we jump to, like, the programs of community policing, that that I saw as, and I'd be curious to see your thoughts on how that works, but that seemed to be a strategic, proactive approach to stopping crime versus, you know, let's just build more prisons to put, put the people in. Getting the police to be partners with the community um, so that then people are more likely to trust them to tell them about things going on or um, and to have them become an integral part of the solution. So what have your thoughts been on community policing? Well, can, How have those programs worked or not worked? Well, I think community policing has been going on for a long time with agencies that are successful. I think it's just now has a term that goes with it and maybe some programs that go with it. But if you ever read the Wamba books and uh, the Blue Knight, you know, he walks a beat and he knows everybody in his area. He knows the, the store owners. He knows the family. He knows what cars or people are supposed to be there and what aren't. What aren't and he recognizes right away when something is not how it should be. And that's kind of what the premise of community policing. You know, your neighborhood's involved. The more eyes you have seeing things, the better. But you're involved in your neighborhood. You just don't drive through it. You know the people that are there. You know the people that are in the businesses in the in within the city, and you know what should be there and what shouldn't. And it's just actually taking the time to kind of go back to that. And then there's programs, of course, that there weren't back in that time. You know where you have house checks when people are gone, and and they know your neighborhood does that. They're you know criminals are probably less likely, you know, to come in. And educating people, you know, it's not a good idea to leave your laptop in your car sitting on the seat for people to see, and especially if you leave your car unlocked. Not that if it's locked, it's going to stop people. But, Especially you know, if you leave yeah. your keys in the ignition. Yeah. You know, and the windows open and a exactly, sign. Exactly. Just take me. And, you know, leave your garage door <laughs> open at night because you live in a safe yeah. community. It's hot, you know, and then, and then your golf clubs are gone or those type of things. It's educating the public on what they can do just to make it a little more difficult for, you know, for the criminal. And but, usually if it takes more time, then they're going to go somewhere that's easier. I mean, really it goes it back to sense. community. If, if you stop and think about we we tend to – solve symptoms in terms of, well, we'll do jails and all those sorts of things. But if you go back to, so what makes a good society in terms of healthy and vibrant? It's, it's strong community. It's good education. It's, it's a community that cares, takes care of each other. You look out for each other. You, you, you do help raise other people's kids. You, I called my neighbor the other day, dude, your garage is open. You want me to close it? I mean, you know, you, you want to do that because it's midnight. And, I mean, you help kind of support each other. And in the areas where we don't do that, things break down and, 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 this, and crime and different things break out. And so it goes back to how do we support our societies better? And nobody wants to put money to that because people, people don't. Right. They want to see criminals in jail. Yeah, it's don't not want tangible. It. You can't no. touch it. You can't yeah. reach out to an overcrowded prison and say, look at all those exactly. guys that aren't stealing my golf club. I mean, I would argue that in a, we've, we build these huge mega high schools and stuff that we'd be far better off to build smaller more, schools more in these them. communities. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a little more money because of the overhead, but but you're going to know what's going on and you're going to know what cars are supposed to be there and not be there. And there's a, a broader sense uh, and a tighter sense of community. And so those types of things don't foster mm-hmm. the negative things. That's the answer. How do we get back to that? Right. Well, and, and I think that if we, if you were to really track, like, what's it cost on that end? Everything from the, the police officer's time and dealing with the, 
the hunting them down, catching them, booking, to what the cost is of the, of the time in court, from everything from the judge to all the people involved to then the prison costs and what it takes guarantee, that's costing us way more money than the money we're putting in proactively to build these community programs or I bet you anything to build more schools. I bet we're spending way more money over here. Um, but but like Pete said, you have something tangible well, you because you can it. be checking some things off you the list. You can budget it. And, yeah. Well, this is just yeah. like the conversation we had last week with, with Bob Hamill. We were talking about uh, No Child Left Behind and measuring your schools, and so therefore you've got something tangible to look at. But are you really hitting the real problem? You're just you're measuring something to show some kind of progress. But underneath, are you really missing it? And it's the same thing here, I think. Well, here's yeah. a tragic reality about the community that you brought up. You know, what I grew up, I knew all the neighbors on my block, and the houses were further than 10 feet apart. You know, it, you know, 40, 50 feet apart. You know, what would be considered probably five neighborhood blocks might be where one of my friends lived. But I knew everybody, and I knew their parents, and the parents knew the parents. And as police officers, we get calls regularly to go and talk to someone's neighbor about their dog barking or something uh -huh. like that because they don't even know who their neighbor is, and they're 10 feet away. And, I mean, that's a sense of community, and I think community policing tries to bring that back by having the neighborhood meetings and that type of thing. But, I mean, that it's a true tragedy when you think about the community. I still am in touch with people I grew up with in my neighborhood, and I haven't been there for over 30 years. And I go to people's houses that are 10 feet from the neighbor's house, and they don't have any idea who they are, if they have kids, what they do, anything about them. So how can you have a sense of community working together Very you know, true. to deal with problems when you don't even have the time or, you know, take the time to or even desire. know who your neighbor is. Yeah, yeah this is, that's really embarrassing. Yeah. I, know, I know one neighbor, I don't know the other, they moved in six months ago. Just never run into each other. Mm -hmm. well, and I think that's probably part of it, is nobody's ever around anymore. You mean you, you anymore, didn't right? go take muffins and walk them to the neighborhood? I don't do muffins, But why Mary. not? <laughs> but why not? I mean, if you really stop down and think about it. Okay, why, bottle of wine. Yeah, that I can do. Why don't we do those things? Well, that's a good question. And, and we get so Because we're busy. We're so we're busy. wired. We're busy, but why are we yeah, because so our busy? social lives, our, social, our socialization is take, taking us farther and farther away from our neighborhood. But we're more lonely than ever. It was a great article. Some study came out in uh, USA Today not too long ago talking about the loneliness mm -hmm. of people. And people are lonelier than ever. And so in the time when we're lonelier than ever, we have crime issues, and et cetera, we can't even bake muffins and get them over to our neighbor to help resolve okay. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to go bake my muffins. My goal for you is to bake muffins. Gonna, I am going to bake muffins and, and a link to this podcast. I'm going to hear that I'm talking about it. Yes. There you <laughs> go. Yeah. That's what so, I'm going to do. kind of if we could just shift gears, because I know that um, I think one thing that would be interesting is um, what's the police force of the future and what are we looking for in candidates now? Well, I think the, the police officer of the future, I mean, we've seen a huge change in this you know, in the last 20 years, even since I became a police officer, and police officers are shifting towards a more educated group of people. It didn't used to be you had to really have any kind of education uh, to become a police officer. My grandfather was a police officer, and he was 6'9". That's why he was a police officer. Where now, you know, it, diversity is important, cultural diversity, understanding different cultures, being able to communicate, being educated, um, are all things that are very important for successful police officers because the face of law enforcement has changed. And so when we look at the candidates coming in now, they need to be able to articulate, they need to be able to communicate, they need to be able to be mature. Um, education helps, it shows some stick to itness, some tenacity on that person's part. It's not an easy job, and so we need people that are going to be able to stick with it, be able to perform, be able to perform under pressure. And, uh, and those are all the qualities I think that are, are very necessary now. And communication 
is really, really big. I mean, you've got to be able to talk. You've got to be able to, to de-escalate situations and talk to each other. It's not who's going to be the biggest person. It's going to be the person that can defuse the situation, and those are the people that, that are going to be successful in law enforcement. And the community has, has really made the request that the quality of officer changed. And it's, it's no longer the good old boys. It's no longer the biggest guy, you know, the biggest gal. It's, the community is required. They're asking for diversity because our communities are diverse. They're asking for educated people. They're asking for people that communicate. And, uh, you know, that's the direction, and that's the direction it's going to continue to go as our community develops. They're, they're looking at police departments to develop as well. Great. So, folks, yeah. hug your police officers. <laughs> now, Tell them you appreciate them. What's your role now? I mean, Jamie's you're teaching. You're teaching. Scowling at me. Scowling. Yeah. I'm just imagining myself running up to this big police officer and giving him a hug as he, as he takes me down and cuffs yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, you might let him know first. Yeah. I was told to hug you today. Yeah, just, just okay. warn him first. The media told me to hug you. <laughs> Uh, so what, do you, what is your role now? With, the, with Are you still involved with the police force? Uh, here uh, not really. I retired um, in June uh-huh. as a lieutenant with the police department. Okay. And um, I've been taking a couple months off. Of course, I teach law enforcement and management courses, which I have for quite a while. Um, but prior to retiring from the, from the police department, I had been working on my um, doctorate. So my main focus right now is finishing that doctorate. And then once I do... Uh, will I go back into the law enforcement realm? Probably a pretty good chance of it. You Chief know, I'm, of police? Um, maybe. Who knows? I, I'm really interested in uh, in helping um, you know minorities be successful in in law enforcement and helping them to um, to be able to to get to where they need to be. I guess. And, and there's a lot of training issues that haven't been extended to a lot of people. And and I would like to see law enforcement really trend that way. And, and I'd like to be a part of that. You know, I think the more successful, educated our officers are, the more successful we will be. The community will be happier, and I think it takes people to step up and, and really start making that happen. So that's the role I hope that I end up taking in the future. That's excellent. Good for you. So, yeah. Thank you. you so much for coming by. We really appreciate you coming Absolutely. down, sitting down with us for an hour, and I feel like we talked about uh, everything. Another great show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. Oh, it was wonderful. Good it was guess. great. I learned a lot, and uh, I appreciate your insights. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you Anytime. very much. Thanks so All right. Much. For us, Tuesday noon, we're out. out. This has been Tuesday noon for August 15, 2006, brought to you as a service of University of Phoenix. Keep up with us on the blog at Tuesday12.com and email us. We'd love to hear from you at the show at Tuesday12.com. Until next week, this has been Tuesday noon. (laughs) 